Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church PCA in Carrierville, Tennessee, right outside of Memphis. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, missioncarrierville.org. I was in the sixth grade, and I was the water boy for our high school football team. And at that stage in my life, there was nothing that was more important than being the water boy. I traveled with the team. I stood on the sidelines. I got to wear a jersey. It was incredible. And so one Friday night, we were playing our crosstown rivals. I remember it being in the, either the third or fourth quarter. The game was very close. The coach called a timeout and yelled water. So I knew that it was time for me to do my job and I ran out onto the field holding the big container in front of me and I got about halfway and something happened that had never happened all season. I tripped and I landed really hard on top of the Gatorade bottles and they spilt everywhere and it sort of took my breath away the way I landed and I, and I just laid there and I, I began to hear the stadium behind me start to laugh. And I looked out of the corner of my eye, and, and the other team begins pointing at me. And I can tell you truthfully that I was simply hoping, like in the Old Testament, the earth would just open and swallow me whole at that moment. I wanted to die. And I looked over at our huddle, and it separated. And here comes the starting running back, the best player on the team, my hero as a sixth grade boy in middle school. And he walks over to me, and he picks me up, and he dusts me off. And then he bends down and he helps pick up the bottles. He puts his arm around me and walks me back to the huddle. And as I get back to the huddle, the huddle wraps around me, almost like it was they were trying to protect me. And one of the players, one of the offensive linemen, and I was a mess. I had mud on me. I had Gatorade on me. I was trying not to cry, but maybe there was a little bit of moisture in my eyes. He kind of laughed. The running back reached over and he grabbed his face mask. And he said, you do not laugh at him. He's one of us. That was a big moment for a sixth grade little boy to be told, you're one of us. And in that moment, everything that had transpired in the previous five minutes was made right. So this morning, we're going to look at Jesus, and we're going to look at Jesus giving his life for us on the cross. It's a reminder that we are fallen people, and that he comes to us through Calvary, and he says, you're mine. You are mine. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word, and it is true, and it is full of grace. It's full of beauty. It's full of hope. 
Make that our reality this morning. May we see Jesus and Him only. And may we leave here looking a little bit more like our older brother. It's in His name we pray. Amen. There are three things we're going to look at this morning. First, a loving Redeemer. Second, a dying Savior. Third, a misplaced King. I'll say that again. Number one, a loving Redeemer. Number two, a dying Savior. Three, a misplaced King. So let's look at what does it mean that Jesus is our loving Redeemer. I want you to go back and notice 26 and 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. Notice in that passage, Jesus' concern and love for his mother amidst his suffering. It's unbelievable. We know from our passage last week that he had been flogged once. We know that from the rest of the Gospels that he was flogged a second more severe time. So much so that he couldn't carry the cross all the way to Golgotha. He had to have help. So Jesus is now on the cross. He's been nailed through his hands. He's been nailed through his feet. It is a horrible form of execution. I'm not going to go into all the details. I read about it this week. The crucifixion is as bad as it gets. Let's just say that. It's as bad as it gets. So he's been flogged twice, nails in his hands, blood pouring down from the open wounds that would have existed all over his body. The greatest level of suffering that you can probably imagine. And in the midst of that, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the tears, in the midst of the difficulty, what does Jesus do? He remembers his mother. And he looks to John, the beloved disciple, the the one who wrote this gospel, and he says, it is now your responsibility to take care of her. Where were Jesus' brothers? We don't know. More than likely, they were back in Capernaum. If you remember from earlier in the gospels, they were confused about who Jesus was and what he had come to do. So they're not there. Now we know James comes full circle after the resurrection, but his brothers are not there to care for his mother. And in this moment of great weakness, his heart goes out to her. John, here 1 John 4, 16. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. God is love. When you come to 1 John, you have to remember that when it says God, we automatically think God the Father. But remember that our, our, our God is Trinitarian, hence the name of our church plan. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when we say God is love, what we are saying is the Father is love, the Son is love, the Holy Spirit is love. It is a it is a multifaceted love. It is love times three, if you will. That Jesus, as he's dying on the cross, the suffering servant, the Son of God, the Son of Man, that his heart is full of love for his mother, for his followers, that he is thinking about them. He's not thinking about himself. Isn't that Jesus? Isn't that Jesus? He is always thinking about us. He is never thinking about himself. 
Hunter Brewer, more often than not, I'm thinking about myself. I'm not thinking about others. That's why I need Jesus. Because he turns me inside out. It's not about me. It's about others. It's about showing love to others. And that's our king. That's, that's our Messiah. That's what he does for us. So, that when we, so when we come to this passage and we see him on the cross and we see him thinking about his mother, it should be a reminder to us that as he thinks about her, he thinks about us. There's no change in Jesus' nature. If he is thinking about his mother on the cross, what is he doing right now? And we mentioned this last week. He's thinking about us. We said last week that he is singing over us. Absolutely. He is singing over us right now. He is interceding for us right now. We are on his mind right now. Now, I don't understand how that's possible, but Scripture is a mystery. We can't understand everything about God. But the Word seems to be implying that Jesus is always thinking about His people, all of us, around the globe. That's who He is. He's a God of love. He's a Savior who loves His people, who's willing to give His life for His people. So He is dying on the cross. His heart goes out to his mother. It's a reassurance to us, a confidence to us, that even right now in the throne room of heaven, as he sits in power and authority, his mind is on us, his heart goes out to us. What great comfort. I mean, I need that. I need to be reminded that I am loved. Because sometimes in this world, you feel like you're not loved. Sometimes in this world, you feel lonely. Sometimes in this life, you feel perhaps forgotten, but not if you belong to Christ. His mind and his heart is always on you. He's always thinking of you. He places his love upon you. So think about, think about the cross. Think about that moment where Jesus is dying. The cross is a place of love. Yes, it's an earthly place of torture, but from a cosmic, universal kingdom perspective, it's the ultimate place of love. Because the Father loved us so much that He sends His Son to the cross. Jesus loves the Father so much and is willing to obey Him to the point that He dies on the cross. And then the cross, because of Jesus' life and death and suffering, His propitiation, because of the cross, then the Holy Spirit is able to come and to change us so that we can experience the love of the Father and the Son for eternity. So you see all of this going on at this one place. The love of the Father, the love of the Son, and the Spirit able to come to us so that we may personally know and experience the love of our Trinitarian God forever. So even though the cross is a place of torture and it's a cross place of blood, it's disgusting, but from an earthly perspective, yes, it is all of those things. From a kingdom perspective, this is where God plants His love on earth for us. Secondly, notice that Jesus has a plan for his mother. Not only does he 
show his love and his concern for his mother amidst his suffering. He also has a plan for her. He knows that his brothers are not there, and he knows that John, the disciple who loves him, is there. And he says, John, you've got to take care of my mother in the midst of all of this, in terms of how terrible this is. Now, Jesus knows that the resurrection is coming. He knows that his mother is going to see him again. He knows that John, excuse me, James, is going to come around and going to believe in him. He knows that ultimately his mother is going to be okay. But in the moment, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the difficulty, he has a plan. John, take care of my mother. I can't imagine what she's going through. I can't imagine what she's feeling. She may at this moment feel completely abandoned. Care for her. It's a plan for his mother. If Jesus is on the cross and he has a plan for his mother, does that not mean he has a plan for us as he rules over all of creation from the throne room of heaven? Yes. He has a plan for us. And you know what? Sometimes it doesn't make sense. Do you think it made sense to Mary? Here's my son, who I love, who has been beaten, stripped, tortured, and is dying. I'm willing to bet at that moment, Mary would have said, God does not have a plan for my life. But look a couple of days later what happened. The whole universe was turned upside down because her son walked out of a tomb. So we all, we can't see on the other side of the fence. We just can't. God doesn't allow that to happen in this life. But we can look at the cross and we can look at how Jesus has a plan for Mary and we can be reassured that amidst the problems of this life, amidst the mysteries of this life, amidst the darkness of this life, He has a plan because we belong to Him. What great reassurance. Jesus is our loving Redeemer. Secondly, He is our dying Savior, here verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. When I was in high school, stereograms were really popular. If you don't know what that is, you'll, let me describe it, you'll know. The posters that are dots, and if you stare at them forever, you see the image come out from the poster. Okay, for whatever reason, I was never able to see one. We would go to the mall, my friends would stare at it, oh, the Titanic. Oh, the Washington Monument. Oh, space shuttle. I would get furious. I could stay there for an hour, not flinching, staring, never see a thing. I'll never forget one day, I think we were, Vicky and I were married. We had moved to Orlando. We're walking through the mall. I stopped. I looked at one, didn't even stare at that long, and went, space shuttle. I was so excited. I finally was able to see one. In many respects, that passage, this passage 
is like a stereogram for me, personally. You read it as a child or you read it as a young adult, and I always saw Jesus suffering on the cross. Boy, he, he just went through a really bad time. It was terrible. He died, and that gruesome death is how I'm able to come to the Father. Now, in some sense, that's true. In many senses, that's true. But it was, as I began to study history in college, I began to realize, well, there are many people who have died more difficult and strenuous deaths than Jesus. So, what is actually going on at the cross? And I began to study our theological tradition. I began to study Reformed theology. I began to study study covenant theology. And it was like a stereogram. It jumped out of the Bible at me. God's plan for me to redeem me through Jesus became alive. And I began to understand And reading the Old Testament helped significantly. Studying the Old Testament helped significantly. I began to understand that the Bible was one grand message of redemption. And in the Old Testament, God comes to His people and He enters into a covenant with them and He says that if you will obey the covenant perfectly, then I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you like you possibly cannot imagine. But if you disobey the covenant, then you'll be cursed. And we see God say this to Israel over and over again in the various covenants throughout the Old Testament, but perhaps most of you are familiar with the story. What does Israel continue to do? Israel continues to sin. They continue to disobey the covenant. They are not right with God. They are idolatrous people that they are seeking the other gods of other nations. They are worshiping other gods of other nations. And God is patient and God is loving and He continues to wait. He continues through His prophets to call them to repentance. He, call, he, he seeks after them to turn around, to change, to worship Him, to seek after Him. And they just don't do it. And so they deserve to be punished. God's people deserve punishment. Because of sin, we deserve punishment. Sin is our unwillingness to submit our hearts and our minds and our souls to God. And so we come to the New Testament and we see that no one is good, no one is perfect, no one has obeyed the covenant. Everybody deserves the covenant punishment, which is death, which is the wrath of God poured out against sin. Everyone deserves it. And so God, the Father, looks to the Son and He says, I love my people. Go and give your life for them. And so Jesus comes and He comes without sin. That's very important. And then Jesus lives a life in perfect obedience to the Word of God, to the law of God. He does not transgress the law. So Jesus goes to the cross, as we talked about last week. He goes to the cross as the Passover lamb. His blood is innocent. His blood is pure. It's going to be spread over the doorpost, metaphorically, of our hearts so that judgment 
passes over God's people. So the, in the cross, what you see, yes, it's, it's a difficult death. It's a hard death. But what's really happening is the Passover's lamb, his perfect and innocent blood is being spilt. And then at that moment, God is taking all of our punishment. And when I say our, I don't mean believers in this room. I mean all believers from all time and all places. He's taking all of their punishment for their covenant disobedience. And he's going to Jesus and he's going here. And then he looks away. That's what's happening on the cross. It's not so much about the scourging. It's not so much about the nails. It's not so much about how he died. It's God placing his wrath against our sin on Jesus to expunge it from us. And Jesus takes it. Jesus says, bring it to me. This is why he sweated blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is why he asked the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane if this could pass, if it could be done some other way. He knew what was coming. You're going to take all of their punishment and you're going to put it on me. And that's a lot to take. But that's what's happening on the cross. And so Jesus pays the price. He gets what we deserve. And our theology, as it's fleshed out throughout the Old Testament, through the covenants, helped me to finally see what's going on at the cross. That Jesus is dying in my place so that I don't have to receive eternal condemnation and an eternity apart from God. Jesus experienced that all at once. On the cross for his people. So his work is finished. He goes to the cross and he gives his life for his people. And so when he says it is finished, he's not saying I'm ready to die. What Jesus is saying is, all that I have come to do, I have done. Father, I have lived perfectly. I have obeyed your covenant perfectly. I am taking their punishment. I am on the cross. I am spilling my blood. I am the perfect sacrifice. I have done it. It is complete. And then he dies. Remember John chapter 6. All that, the Father, all that the Father gives to me will come to me and I will never drive them away. That's what's taking place on the cross. So His work is finished. But you know what? Your work is too. Here Romans 4 verse 5. This is not the English Standard Version. This is the New Living Translation. But people are counted as righteous not because of their work but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. Hear that again. The people are counted as righteous not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. Your work is finished. Here's what I mean by that. I used to say 
several years ago that this was Southern culture, Southern religiosity. I really think it's more American religiosity. I'm no longer amazed when I talk to people how they think it is up to them to save themselves. Doesn't surprise me anymore. Look, this is the American way. I'm going to work really hard and earn this degree. I'm going to work really hard and I'm going to make more money at my job. I'm going to try to put more in my 401k. I want to, I'm going to be a better parent. I'm going to work hard at being a better spouse. American society is such that we believe that it is all up to us to accomplish great things in this life. That's sort of the American ethos. But, but Scripture tells us the world has fallen, that the world is broken, that the world is cursed. And you've heard me say this before, and I will continue to say it over and over again. We desire to be our own God. Sin working in our life creates in us a desire to be our own God. I want to be in charge. I don't want to make mistakes. I want to be perfect. I want everybody to, to focus on me. I want everybody to serve me. I want things my way. I want to be my own God. And so when you think about the American's perspective of work hard, work harder, and you think about the spiritual perspective of, I want to be my own God, what that does, what that creates, strong language, but the monster that it produces are people in this culture, and I would assume in some sense cultures around the world, people, it produces people who think that they can earn their own salvation. If I just try harder and I just do better, I'll be right with God. I've gone through evangelism training and we go and we talk to people out in the community and I remember the first time that I went to do it, I just thought, my goodness, this is the South. Everyone's going to give the answer. Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. And over and over again, the answer that we received was, I'm just a good person and I'm trying hard and it's going to be all right. What, according to your standard? I've had people tell me, I'm doing all right, I'm a good person, and I wanted to step back and honestly tell them, no, you're really not a good person. You're really not. I don't know why you think you are, you're not. But then I've met people who are really nice and really good, and they'll indicate, you know, well, I'm, I'm living the good life, and I don't do bad things, and at the end, God will accept me. And my heart breaks because in their goodness I see sin and failure. Because their goodness is often motivated, motivated by their desire to be their own God. We live in a culture, we live in a world, we live in a society where people are trying to save themselves. If I just do this, I just do that, if I just keep my nose clean, it's all going to work out in the end. No, it doesn't. Because we were born in sin. Sin is engrafted into our DNA. And we're not even aware. We're not even aware of how sinful we are most of the time. 
That's why marriage in some sense is so beautiful because your spouse enables you to see your misgivings that you're not even aware of. I have a coach and we meet once a week, uh, excuse me, once a month. And he will point out things and that when I leave, I think I'm doing okay. And when I walk out the door, I realize, gosh, I'm just more sinful than I thought. That's human nature. That's who we are. And most of the people that we interact with, most of the people that we live near, most of the people that we engage with, their operating perspective is, I just need to be good enough. And the gospel says, only Jesus is good enough. So his work is finished and your work is finished. Stop trying to save yourself. Stop trying to be just good enough and rest completely in Jesus and trust in His goodness and trust in the work that He did on the cross. Gosh, it will set you free. And then finally, our work continues. His work is finished, your work is finished, but our work continues. What do I mean? As the church, we have been commissioned to go and tell people that Jesus' work is finished and their work is finished. We have been given the task, the grand responsibility to go into our community, to go to our families, to go to our friends, to go out into the world and to point to Jesus, to lift up the cross. So our work continues. Third point. We have a loving Redeemer, we have a dying Savior, and we have a misplaced king. So I want you to look at verses 16 through 18 and then 23 through 24. So they took Jesus and went out bearing his own cross to the, pla to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Then verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scriptures, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So Jesus goes outside the walls of Jerusalem. He goes outside of the place where the Holy of Holies resided, where God's foot rested on earth. Jesus goes to the outside. He goes near the town garbage dump. So it says that Scripture was fulfilled when they divided His garments and they rolled the dice to see who would take His tunic. This is remindful of Psalm 22 and King David. King David's in a very dark place. He's in a very bad place. And he, he imagines a place of execution, a place of desolation. And King David says, in that place they divided my garments because I was going to die and I no longer would need clothes. 
And so we know from 16 through 18, they've taken him to the place of the skull. They've taken him outside the city. They've taken him outside of the city of David, Jerusalem. They've taken him to a place of torture. They've taken him to a place of desolation. They have taken him to a place of execution. Now this is Jesus, the son of David, the Messiah who is in the Davidic line. He, amongst all people on earth, had the right to walk into the Holy of Holies and say, this is mine. He had the right to take Pilate's chair and say, you're not in charge. The Roman government's not in charge. I'm in charge. This is my chair. This is the seat of my authority. This is my city. This is where I will rule forever. It all belongs to me. Where does he end up? outside the city, away from the Holy Holies, in the most desolate and horrible place you can imagine. That's where Jesus goes. On the outside, looking in. Last night, John Hunter helped me yesterday with a lot of work. Help was set up here at the church, and I said, you know what? Let's get snow cones tonight. Let's get snow cones tonight. We have tried to get snow cones three other times. And every time we go, they're closed. Or they're closing and they say, we, we can't serve you a snow cone. So last night, we all load up as a family. We go to get snow cones. We pull up into the parking lot. Lights are on. We even stopped earlier to see how late they would stay open. It's 8 o'clock. They're going to stay up until 9. Everything's great. We're getting snow cones. We walk in. We get to the door. And the young lady comes out and says, We're closed. No snow cones. We did not get the snow cone that he likes with nerds on top of it. It's, it's terrible, but he loves it. I didn't get a snow cone. I wanted a snow cone. It's so frustrating. I was just, I wanted to drive my truck through the front doors and make a snow cone. I was so frustrated. Because we were what? We were on the outside looking in. We couldn't get in there. I wanted to get in there. I wanted a snow cone. Half great, half strawberry. They're fantastic. On the outside looking in. Think about this. Jesus leaves the throne room of heaven in the presence of the Father and the Holy Spirit, never having experienced the weight of sin or the fall. The ultimate insider. The ultimate insider. And where does he go? He goes outside the city walls to the town garbage dump to die. Why did he do that? Because he wanted us who are on the outside to be able to come inside. He is the insider who went to the outside so the outsiders could come in. So we could come home. That Jesus provides the way 
for us to leave the place of desolation, to leave the place of execution, to leave the place of judgment, and to come in to that throne room. That's what the outsider does for us. Take that to heart. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you have done so many things for us. That your cross is truly a place of love. That your cross is a place of forgiveness and hope and joy and peace eternal. Lord Jesus, thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for redeeming us. Father, may that good news, that gospel news encourage us, not only today, but as we go our separate ways this week. And as we look forward to Resurrection Sunday, when we gather together again as your family, as your people adopted in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.